1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Lauren Groff returns to Little Atoms to talk about her latest novel, Matrix. Lauren Groth is a New York Times bestselling author of three novels, The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies, and the celebrated short story collections Delicate Edible Birds, and Florida, which we talked about on Little Atoms a couple of years ago. Her work has been featured in The New Yorker, Harpers, The Atlantic, and several Best American Short Story anthologies. And today we're going to be talking about Lauren's latest novel, Matrix. Lauren, welcome back to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Neil.
1: First of all, tell us how you would describe this novel.
2: I would describe this novel as a contemporary retelling of the life of Marie de France, who is the first female poet in French, uh, who became an abbess. But we don't actually know much about her, so it's all imagined. She becomes a mystic in my book. Uh, And this book deals with ideas of female power and autonomy and uh, a little bit of climate change and all sorts of other things, the purpose of religion. in in the life of a a person who is resistant to it. Well,
1: hearing you describe it in those terms, I was going to say, you know, this is ostensibly on the surface a departure for you compared to your previous work. But actually, there are many contemporary resonances in the story.
2: Oh, absolutely. I actually meant for this book to be sort of the past and the present speaking to each other over the abyss. There's this incredible Alice Smith quote that I was thinking about as I was writing that goes, a work of art in unfixes time, the shaft opens, the past and present exist in the same moment, and we know as beings that we are connected. And that's sort of the idea that I was trying to go with. I also played around with some of the historical fiction written by, say, Penelope Fitzgerald, who does this sort of extraordinarily light vision of the past written with uh, a great deal of sort of contemporary wits and ideas sort of slithering in and out. So that was my model for this book.
1: Well, I was going to ask you about that right at the end, but let's do it now then. So who else, apart from Penelope Fitzgerald, in terms of writing hysterical fiction, hysterical fiction, a a bit of a Freudian slip, (laughs) Um, in in terms of writing historical fiction, who else would have been an influence?
2: Um, Well, I uh, I love this book by Ron Hansen called um, Mariette and Ecstasy. Yes, I believe it's Ron Hansen. Um, I just had a a little blip in my brain. And then Sylvia Townsend Warner wrote this medieval nun story that's just hilarious and strange called The Corner That Held Them. And of course, before I even started, I went back to the greatest of all, Hilary Mantel, because she does it better than anyone. And she does it with such grace and almost balletic ability. Um, So Yeah, there are so many people that actually leaned on to think through this idea of historical fiction to try to make it speak in multiple resonances into the contemporary world.
1: So let's talk about Marie de France then, the real Marie de France, what we conceivably know about her. And there are multiple possible people who she could have been and I say this not least because I've got a bit of skill in the game here in that we live literally <laughs> um, our building overlooks the ruins of Barking Abbey which is um, oh. one of the one of the people Maria of Barking is one of the people that are potentially mooted as being Marie de France.
2: This makes me so happy because Barking was the Abbey that I actually studied the most um, in order to think through these ideas. I love... Maria Barking. I think she is a phenomenal human. Uh, Barking and Shaftesbury, right? Those are the two two mm. main ones that I was looking at. And I looked at actually their, their roles, and I got a lot of the names for the nuns in my book from the roles of Barking Abbey and Shaftesbury Abbey. So Marie could have been any number of people. The thing about women at the time is that they were only interesting to chronologers if they, through their relations, right, through their husbands, their fathers, the sons that they bore, unfortunately. So Marie, she left behind her these great works of art. The Lay, I think, in particular, are amazing, and her fables are very good too. But she didn't leave behind much trace in the historical record. So they say that she could have been an abbess of perhaps Barking. They say that she could have been Eleanor Aquitaine's daughter from her first marriage to Louis Lusset. Um They say that she could have been a bastard daughter of some nobility or royalty. She had to have been noble, at least, uh, because she was literate. And that was a time in which women were just not taught to read and write unless they're expected to take over the management of greats states so yes we we don't know much about her we do know that she was literate in multiple languages
1: and so the work though the work is something of course that that exists so tell us something about you mentioned the the lays the poetry that she writes and her retellings of aesop's fables and her own fables as well so tell us something about the work
2: Oh my goodness. so I fell in love with the lay back in um, university. I, for a while, I thought I wanted to be a medievalist. So I studied Ancien Francais and I, I just love Marie and I love her lay. There's such weird um, stories. They're basically short stories in poetry and they draw on very ancient stories from um, Brittany and Normandy, I believe. And They, um, a lot of them are Arthurian. Um, Some of them are, uh, they talk about courtly love and they're weird, right? Like there are a lot of magical things that happen in them. I, for a while, I actually was trying to do a new translation, almost like Maria um, Davana Headley's new Beowulf, where you take the old text and you sort of electrify it with the contemporary world and it didn't work out. So instead I wrote a novel.
1: You mentioned Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Eleanor is a character in the novel. Of course, so this is in the main a novel about an abbey, about nuns, about a cloistered existence. So consequently, we don't actually get that much political historical context about this time, the 11th, 12th century, which is, you know, a time that's relatively unknown to us, to contemporary eyes. So, you know, despite the fact that you, you don't talk about it that much in the book, I'm going to ask you to, to set it into the context of, of where we are in time here, if you can.
2: Oh, absolutely. So I, I did try to do the contemporary time of Maria's World kind of gently, but it does come in and out uh, in sort of a half line and, and sort of the, the larger pressures there. So, of course... At the time, this was a generation past the Norman Conquest, and Eleanor of Aquitaine, she was first the Queen of France uh, early in her life. She was born in 1122. And then she got that annulled, and she crossed, and she married Henry II, who was Empress Matilda's heir, and he became King of England, right? So this is the time of the Crusades, and Eleanor and um, both of her husbands actually were involved in uh, the Second Crusade, which is between 1147 and 1150. And the pressures at the time were kind of extraordinary, right? Like pressures of... Catholic Europe pushing down into the Holy Lands to try to gain Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem is lost multiple times, and then they tried to conquer it again. This set the, basically the prototype for the next thousand years of imperialism from European sources into the rest of the world. And that was something that I wanted to look at a little bit more deeply to to see these deep roots and to see the way that perhaps we can trace the way that the world is now back through time and into this this moment that I think most contemporary people don't know a great deal about.
1: Well, one thing that this contemporary person didn't know anything about at all. Marie, your Marie, who we'll talk about in a moment, her family, she has all of these warrior aunts and they have taken part in, indeed, she has herself
2: in women's crusades, which I'd never heard of. Were these a real thing? Well, it may be apocryphal. We don't actually know, but we do know that Eleanor of Aquitaine went to the Second Crusade. And in fact, she was blamed for the failure of it, of course, because women are always blamed for the failures of things like this. And so I think um, some historians have said that the, the myth of the ladies' army in the Second Crusade, Eleanor's ladies' army, comes out of actually, I think it's Turkish historians who looked at these people in the white and crimson crusader tunic um with hair unleashed on leash, riding horses down hills and assume that they were women because they, I don't know, they were long-haired. So there are multiple references to women who did go to the Crusades and and brought their own forces there and sort of led their own forces. Um, whether or not Eleanor had a large group of women actually riding off to battle with her, who knows? <laughs> but I thought it was such an extraordinary image, right? These women riding down the hill with swords drawn. And I said I needed it for my book. Um, so tell us something about
1: your character, Marie, then, who she is.
2: So my Marie was raised by a bunch of very Virago-like aunts in Men near Normandy. And it's sort of an idyllic life with her grandmother and her aunts. And uh, she was super literate, very, very smart, um, very tall and imposing and um, very rude. So when she finally, her mother dies, she, she loses control of her family estate. She has to go to her brother. She's a bastard. Um, her brother's court and uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine's court across in England. She's seen as sort of a rube. Um, she doesn't. She's kind of rough. She doesn't quite know how to speak. She never really learned um, courtly manners, and uh, she's unmarriageable. And so they sort of gently boot her off to this abbey because she is literate. She is able to run an uh, a large estate, and sh- they want her to rehabilitate the abbey.
1: The way you've just described her there, and in the book, she is relentlessly described as, this is a weird way to describe a number, unattractive. This is not just a throwaway comment at the start when we first introduced her, or all the way through. Whenever Marie is in the action and she's described, she said she like said, she's ungainly, she's rube-like, she's too tall, she's unattractive, and you clearly go above and beyond duty in, in describing <laughs> her physical attributes, <laughs> of unattractiveness here. And I wanted to talk about why. I mean, clearly this yeah. is this is a deliberate thing.
2: Very fair criticism. Thank you. Um for yeah, holding my feet to the fire for this, because I agree. I think Maria's extraordinarily vain and her vanity is part of her character. And she's she's vain and she's wounded by the way that she thinks other people see her. And so she's constantly thinking Back to her her own physical attributes and feeling not good enough, and and this inspires her to do some quite lovely and wonderful things in the book. But it also inspires her to to perhaps compensate in other areas. <laughs> so I would like to believe that uh, her it is this um, constant reference back to her unloveliness comes from. Her and comes from her her feelings of being an outsider and being a bastardess and being um, not good enough and and trying very hard with all of her intelligence and power to overcome what she saw as her profound preliminary flaws.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: This is a Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lauren Groff, and we're talking about her latest novel, Matrix. And, Lauren, I want to spend a good part of the second half talking about the life of a nun, the daily routine of nuns. <laughs> and um, to begin that, I... If you like to go spend, you know, a good 20 minutes Googling various different sites, trying to work out what the difference was between an abbess and a prioress. And, and opinions seem to be divided. So I will ask you the same question.
2: <laughs> well, I think that in larger abbeys, um, there were different orders of obedientaries, which are the people who support the, the head of the house. Uh, I think in the larger places, the abbesses ruled, um, but perhaps I'm incorrect and you can tell me what your research um, <laughs> told you, um, but there, sometimes there were only prioresses and sometimes there were only abbesses and sometimes there were both in the same place.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what I read and it was confusing okay. as to, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> sometimes exactly. it's best, sometimes it's the prior s They're both in charge. Right, exactly. And there are, you know, as you said, various different layers. There are nuns that are that are no longer novices, you know, that are, that are sisters, that are in charge of the various different areas, have various different jobs and tasks and stuff. And then there are sort of novices. And then there is a, another group of people called oblates and here in this story they're often children and i wanted to talk about who they were
2: yeah so in this particular story that's a little bit different um in general an oblate was someone who was given to the abbey um a child oblate was someone who was given to the abbey as a child Their parents. And so, for instance, Hildegard von Bingen, who's my favorite medieval mystic, she's a genius on multiple levels. She was given as a child oblate. She would grow up within this abbey, um, learning the things that the other nuns taught her, learning numbers, learning literacy, learning languages, learning how to run a, a vast estate in a fiefdom, and becoming powerful that way. And In this book, it's obviously, I tried very, very hard not to put anything into the book that I hadn't found an instance of in my research, which was extensive and exhausting. But I think that it's, I stretched a little bit at the borders of what is in the historical record by making my child Oblates be people from the impoverished classes and like strong People from of the the villainesses, the um, the peasants working on the field, um, because Marie sees that uh, different qualities are necessary for the running of a place like this abbey. Like she gets. Um, Daughters of shoemakers, for instance, to come in and be child oblates so that eventually these shoemaker daughters could make shoes. Right? Um, glassmaker daughters, um, because glass is extraordinarily expensive and kind of rare at the time, too, to come in and, and sort of bring their knowledge to the abbey and thus make a self-sufficient place that, that creates its own wealth.
1: And there's something more about the depth of the research you did
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, the research part of any novel for me is the most joyous part. I just get extraordinarily into... Basically everything I can get my hands on. So I read popular histories, I read academic books, tomes and tomes about um, medieval life. One of the the more interesting ones that I read was this book by Penelope Johnson, which is called Equal in Monastic Profession, where she talks about the enormous fluidity that existed in medieval monasteries between the roles of people and the and the way that the nuns and the monks. Um, had this sort of social fluidity that was possibly it was just not possible in other places. I got very into, you know, papers, articles by academics, but I also would watch movies. Right? <laughs> like, I think at the end of the day, if I was so tired, my brain just wasn't working anymore. I would watch, say, Doubts or Black Narcissus or anything that had to do with nuns Um even if it, it weren't necessarily obvious, I would always get something from it. So Some sort of moment between the sisters or uh, a feeling, a tone that I wanted to replicate. So it was just an extensive process of just following my absolute delight and bliss into this time.
1: This may be a, a very predictable question for me to ask, but um, where does the, the practice of the infirmatrix relieving the expression of built up humours come from?
2: Yeah, um, I can see the cover of the book right now, but it's upstairs. Oh, God, I cannot remember the title of this book right now. But there is a book that's talking about um, female sodomy, which uh, did not necessarily exist at the time because the people codifying the rules for the church were men, especially celibate men, uh, whose ideas of the female body uh, were not necessarily very accurate. And so I think they believed at the time that unless there was a penis involved, sex couldn't actually happen. So the idea of women actually having sex with one another, some people referred to it, but it was something that it was almost outside the scope of the imagination for the men at the time who were sort of invested in identifying and clarifying and creating these rules and these ideas about churchly duty. (laughs) Um, So I thought that that was actually quite spectacular, um, this idea that just because men couldn't see female sexuality with each other, they thought that possibly, they didn't even know that it existed.
1: I wanted to talk about this idea that these women even though across the book The abbey, Marie and her abbey, develops and develops and grows and grows in power. And all the time, as you said, all of the the rules that, that govern the church are made by men. The countryside is surrounded by noble men that are always looking at her and suggesting that, you know, she's getting above her station there's, um, and I'm, I'm sort of going to mangle it a bit, but there was there's a quote in the book where she looks to Eleanor and says, you know, Eleanor is like, you know, mad because she thinks she's free. But, you know, she's as as caught in the sort of strictures of the rest of society as anybody else is. And this idea of them um, living in this This world where at any moment they can be, you know, brought down to earth by men sort of manifests itself. Marie has visions in the book, and and at one point they construct around the abbey a labyrinth to keep the outside world even further at bay. And I wanted to talk about this idea, where that came from.
2: So the original idea of the uh, labyrinth came from something that I just kept seeing over and over again, in my research, which was the unicursal labyrinth in, for instance, le cathédrale de Chartres. Um, there's this amazing like inset tile work sort of labyrinth. And it was supposed to symbolize a journey toward, a pilgrim's journey toward uh, Jerusalem. You, you go one way, it's sort of a meditative thing. Um, so I kept seeing this, I kept seeing it. And I came up against two other things that sort of bloomed the idea in my head. And the first was Henry II had, as he was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, had a mistress called Rosamond. And um, he loved her very much. He, she was absolutely the love of his life. And um, the myth of the time, because there was misinformation then as well, no. Facebook but a, lot, a great deal of misinformation because not everyone was literate and, and a lot of the things being told about the world were told orally. And as we all know from the game of telephone, things get perverted as they go from one person to another. Um, Rosamond, the myth goes, was placed at the center of a labyrinth in order to keep her safe from Eleanor of Aquiton, the, the jealous wife. And in some of the the variations of this myth, Eleanor got to her and poisoned her and she died young. Which is, I don't believe it for a second, but I do, I you know, I believe he probably made beautiful gardens around his mistress. And then the third thing that I saw is this, it's very sad, but I saw... With climate change and just exacerbating heat uh, in places that have been temperate like England, the very old substructures and some of the the earthworks that have been lost under layers and layers of um, sod and grass have started to push their way up to the surface of the grass and sort of are searing dead brown grass into the living green grass to show the outlines of buildings that are long gone. And this idea became sort of the caring underlying idea of the whole book, this idea that the lost can be maybe made visible on the surface of things. Um, And this is going back to the idea of the current moment, the contemporary moment speaking a thousand years ago and a thousand years ago speaking back into the current moment, which I was trying to go for in this book. So, yeah, so that's where the idea of the labyrinth comes from. Also, I have to say, too... When I found that, I realized that the actual architecture, the structure, the architectural structure of this book had to be written in a labyrinthine form. So, so it's also the, the physical structure of the book, too. Anyway, all of these things went into the labyrinth and it became the carrying metaphor for the book.
1: And just one more thing from me, and then I'll get you to to read us a bit, if you would. Yeah, just thinking back again to that contemporary resonance of ideas of climate change. And I wanted to talk to you about your writing about landscape and nature in the book. Obviously, these nuns live, I mean, as everybody did in those times, a lot closer to nature than we do now. And, And your writing about, you know, animals, plants in the book is beautiful. So tell me something about that.
2: Oh, gosh. So I was trying to imagine what it might have been like to have been alive then when there's no kind of mechanical marker of time, right? And even Easter had to be argued about when it should fall. So how do you live in time without the sort of reliance on on timekeeping that we have now? And I realized that we had to go back to being a little bit more in tune with the animal body and the perceptions of lights and the times that flowers would open in the morning and close up. And um, these nuns, their lives were regulated by the liturgical schedule, very, very intense, very regular periods when they had to stop their work and go pray. And to go back into the animal body to see the sort of slowness and timekeeping, it just made sense to me to, to pay radical attention to the physicality of the nuns, to the place where they're living, and to watch the animals, to sort of get clues about chronology and the passage of the day.
1: To finish it off then, can I get you to read it a bit?
2: Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so this is just the beginning of the book. She rides out of the forest alone, 17 years old in the cold March drizzle, Marie, who comes from France. It is 1158 and the world bears the weariness of late Lent. Soon it will be Easter, which arrives early this year. In the fields, the seeds uncurl in the dark, cold soil, ready to punch into the freer air. She sees for the first time the abbey, pale and aloof on a rise in this damp valley, the clouds drawn up from the ocean and wrung against the hills in constant rainfall. Most of the year this place is emerald and sapphire, bursting under dampness, thick with sheep and chaffinches and newts, delicate mushrooms poking from the rich soil. But now in late winter, all is gray and full of shadows. Her old warhorse glumly plods along and a merlin shivers in its wicker mew on the box mounted behind her. The wind hushes, the trees cease stirring. Marie feels that the whole countryside is watching her move through it. She is tall, a giantess of a maiden, and her elbows and knees stick out ungainly. The fine rain gathers until it runs in rivulets down her sealskin cloak and darkens her green head cloths to black. Her stark, angevin face holds no beauty, only canniness and passion yet unchecked. It is wet with rain, not tears. She's yet to cry for having been thrown to the dogs.
1: So I've been talking to Lauren Groff. We've been talking about her latest novel, Matrix, which is out in the UK from Hutchinson Heinemann. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us.
2: It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.